0: Well, hey guys, it's good to be with you. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, which I think is 99% of you, uh, I am supposed to be here. Uh, so, my name is Steve, and I pastor at Doxology Church. We're a partner church in the Acts 29 network. We're in North Arlington. And uh, your pastor, Nick, he got sick this week, and so he just called me up and asked if I could fill in. So, more than happy to do that. And in, in particular, I'm really excited to be with you guys because. Uh, so I, I know your former lead pastor, Jeff Timmer very well. He's actually one of the provisional elders on our board of elders, as we're still raising up internal elders within, within our church. Uh, Nick, as both he and Nick, have preached at our church to, to help me out. And you guys have been supporting our church financially, uh, actually since before we planted in the beginning of 2019. And so we wouldn't even exist as a church in large part, uh, without you guys. And so thank you, you know, for those of you who give of your finances, uh, because it really has made a great difference uh, in the life of our church. And so just thrilled to be with you guys this morning, walk through the Word. And what we're going to do this morning is, so our church, we've actually been in the Ten Commandments, which is, you could say, the Old Testament version of the Sermon on the Mount, which I know you guys have been in uh, since February or so. So we're going to look at the Ten Commandments, the First Commandment, and hopefully it'll also give you a little bit of a framework on how to relate to the Sermon on the Mount, as you guys are finishing that up. So if you have your Bibles with you, just please go ahead and open it up. We're going to look at two sections. Uh, First will be the Ten Commandments, which you can find in Exodus 20. And so we'll be looking at Exodus 20, verses 1 through 3. And I believe the words will be on the screen as well. And then we're going to look at the corollary to the first commandment in Romans chapter 1, where Paul talks about it. And that will be in Romans 1, uh, 21 through 25. So a a little bit of flipping, but so just please uh, read along with me. Uh, Exodus twenty one to 3 and then Romans 1, beginning in verse 21, and then we'll jump in. So Exodus 20, starting in verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. And then Romans 1, 21-25. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator." who is blessed forever, amen. So as we look at God's law, so go back to Exodus chapter 20, and this is gonna frame our discussion. Really, hopefully, it helps you frame any of God's law every time you look at it. So notice what's the most important thing about the 10 commandments is they don't start with a command. Uh, so see that in verse two. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That's the first thing he says before he gives them the law. And so what God's saying here is when you were slaves in Egypt, I didn't say obey the law and only if you obey the law enough, I'll liberate you, right? No, instead he frees them and he says, now that you're free people, now that you belong to me, here's how you love one another well, here's how you enjoy me. And so he frees them, then gives them the law. And it's the same thing, right, as Jesus giving the Sermon on the Mount. He says, I've already saved you by grace, right? Now here's how you live in my kingdom as people who belong to me. And so here's the difference that this makes. So uh, a couple months ago, I was talking with a friend of mine who works in DC, and he was sharing with me that he, there's a, a woman he knows who, she's a, a very, gifted, very gifted lady, and long story short, she ended up in Ukraine, and she's there now. Uh, she was there before everything blew up, and now she's still there. And she's now found herself in the position where she is the person of highest authority overseeing the orphan situation in Ukraine. Like, can you imagine? Um, millions of orphans. And so she was calling my friend because he has a lot of connections in D.C., and she's just looking for help because she's saying, I'm... I'm a mom from Ohio, and now I've found myself in this impossible situation, and I'm on calls now with the Secretary of State, and can you put me in touch with so-and-so so I can get resources and assistance? And I was thinking, you know, so imagine, and maybe some of you can imagine, imagine you're an orphan, right? You're, you're fleeing your home, and say you, you cross state line, and you have child A and child B. And the first child, the home that they goes into, they, the home that they go into. Here's how it works: the parents say, "You're in our home," and if you disobey the household rules enough, you're back on the streets. Okay, so that's family A. Family B: the parents get on one knee next to the child, and they say, "We've adopted you." And so what this means is you have our last name now. You have all of the resources and inheritance of our home. We will never leave you or forsake you. And we will do everything we can to protect you and care for you. And now because you're in our family, here are the household rules. Here's how you love your brother and your sister Here's how you obey your mother and father because they're so much wiser than you. Which child's life is going to be marked by fear and bitterness, right? And which child's life is going to be marked by security and joy, right? Even if they don't always understand the rules of their parents, and it's obvious, right? And so that's how the law of God works. And it's only in the kingdom of Jesus where you get household B rather than household A, right? Because the system of the world, right, even secularism is if you do enough, then you know you are enough. It's only in the kingdom of Jesus where you already belong to me. I'm not going anywhere. Now, here's how you love well. Okay, here's how you love the Lord who's committed to you. And so, you know, because we tend to bristle at the law of God, or we tend to just feel crushed by it, for those of you who are very type A, always know you're breaking it, not living up to it, we have to remember how that order works, okay? So now as we go into the first commandment, and as you guys finish up the Sermon on the Mount, just remember what home you're in, okay? So what we're going to see is God gives the first commandment, and essentially what the Lord's saying is, of all the household rules that are the most important to follow, it's the first one. Thou shalt have no other gods before me, or otherwise known as idolatry. Uh, Some of you may be very familiar with the concept of idolatry. Uh, Others of you, maybe you're exploring the faith, maybe maybe you've been in the church for a while, and you're not really familiar with her. What's the relevance? It seems kind of abstract. And this has been one of the most helpful realities for me, just in my own walk with Jesus. And so I hope this helps you guys as well. And so as we look at this concept of of idolatry, we'll look at it, uh, we'll just ask these three questions. Okay. So first, number one, what's the essence of idolatry? Number two, why is it so dangerous? Why does God put it first? And then number three, if it is so dangerous, what's the solution? so first, What's the essence of idolatry? Uh, Number two, why is it so dangerous? And number three, what's the solution to idolatry? Okay, so first, uh, number one, what's the essence of idolatry? And here's where the Apostle Paul helps us in Romans 1 when he's talking about this. So uh, see what he says in Romans 1 verse 22. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and then here's the key phrase in verse 23, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals. And then you see it again in verse 25. Uh, Because they exchanged, he's talking about human dysfunction. Why did this happen? Verse 25, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. And so what the essence of idolatry is, it's an exchange. Okay? It's, it's, it's exchanging God, our creator, for something created. Or put another way, it's exalting something created or something derivative. God's the only category in not derivative things. Everything else is derivative. Okay? It's exalting something that's the derivative and looking at it to give you control, happiness, security, and the way that only God, the Creator, can do. And so why does God put this first? Well, the Israelites, they're coming out of 400 years of living in a polytheist environment. So their envir- the air they breathe is a people who are constantly exchanging the Creator for derivative things. So they look to, they have gods for everything, right? So they have a god of the harvest, and they have a god of fertility, and they bow down to these gods and make sacrifices to these gods to incre- increase the risk of having a lot of children and healthy children to have a good harvest. And so God's saying, this is just what feels natural to you because you've been swimming in this water for so long, but I'm calling you to something better, Okay, to, to worship and serve me rather than something derivative. And we hear this, you know, we hear about, okay, these people a long time ago, they had a God of harvest and a God of fertility and they had shrines and they gave them things How primitive, I think the Egyptians were just more honest about what they were doing. Right? Because we have the same gods. We're just more sophisticated. So we don't name it Osiris. We name it Stock Market. Or 401k. Right? We don't have a shrine to Aphrodite. But we certainly have right the gods of... Sex, romance, even family. And so as we think about this here, it's not, do you worship something derivative or not? We all do. Okay, so it's what is that derivative thing? It's just like hunger. It's not a matter of, are you going to eat? But what are you going to eat? And so even if you're here and you're not religious at all, just when the Bible talks about sin, this is at the heart of it. Okay, idolatry. So that's the essence: okay, exchanging God, the Creator, for something created or derivative, looking to it to give us happiness, security, purpose in the way that only God can. So now let's look at why is it so dangerous. Hopefully, this starts to make it a little bit more concrete because we're not going to be motivated to follow God here unless we see the ripple effects. Okay, so uh, the first one is the reason why it's so dangerous is because it is the root of all other sin. This is. So I may be reading too much into this, um, and this isn't my idea. Okay? I think Martin Luther was the first one, at least who popularized this idea, but I think he's right, that God puts it first because you can't break any of the other commandments without first breaking the first one. So you know, think, why would you break commandment nine, thou shalt not lie? Usually it's because, why do you lie? Often because you've exalted right a person, something derivative, a person's opinion of you. Over God's, and so you lie. Why would you break Commandment number ten? Thou shalt not covet, right? Because if you exalted something that someone else has—their career path, their marriage, their home, right—and you're expecting it to fill your soul in the way that only God can, it's the root of every sin. And I've talked with a number of people who have made—they've just made very honest and I think reasonable uh, assessments—and they've asked me questions, and it goes to the effect of this. So if God was so smart, you know, this is usually coming from someone exploring the faith or someone who isn't a believer. Um, If God was so smart, why didn't he come up with better commandments? You know, like, wouldn't commandment one something like, hey, how about thou shalt not commit genocide or thou shalt not rape? Wouldn't that have been better? I mean, why something so silly like don't put any other gods before me? But, you know, Hitler couldn't have done what he did if he didn't first violate the Sixth Commandment, thou shalt not murder, among many of, the, many of the other commandments. If he didn't first break the First Commandment right, by worshiping at the altar of needing to somehow hide his fragile sense of identity, at the altar of nationalism, at the altar of control. Harvey Weinstein couldn't have did what he did unless he, but also everyone around him, wasn't violating the first commandment, for example, by worshiping the altar of job security or career advancement, which is why people didn't speak out around him for the longest time. So it's very wise why God made this the first commandment. And so for us, it's so important why we're checking ourselves and why we have people in community looking at us, okay, what are we looking to? We may think, okay, I'm never gonna be one of those people Maybe not, but even if so, think about even just the people in your circles. Like one of the best things you can do for the people closest to you in your life is follow the law of God, and especially this commandment. Okay, so first, God puts it first because it is at the root of every other sin. Second, uh, why, is this, why is this commandment so dangerous? And it's because it distorts our thinking, it distorts our thinking when we exchange God the creator for something created. And so we see this in Romans 1 at the end of verse 21, right? So they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, and then here's the key, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. I.e., first we have to become twisted in our thinking to even make this exchange, but then once we do it, it feeds into it and it distorts our thinking even further. And so here's an example that hopefully isn't too visceral, but imagine if you're out somewhere after church, and you see a parent in your church, and they don't don't see you, but you see them, and they're with one of their children, and a person walks up, sketchy-looking person walks up to the parent, and they say, hey, I'll give you this new iPhone in exchange for your child, and you know nothing good is going to come from them giving them their child. And you see the parent make the exchange. Right? There's something so profoundly dark about that that even to first make the exchange, you have to not see reality clearly. Right? But then once you do, it's going to do something to your heart even further. And so that's what happens, right? Because it's just as unloving and just as irrational... <laughs> To exchange the glory of the immortal God right, for the beauty of who he is and for, for the care which he constantly shows us for anything derivative or created. I mean on an even wider and more infinite scale than the parent-child iPhone example. And when we do it, it distorts our thinking, and then we will justify anything to keep that God. And so here are just a couple examples that I've personally seen. So one is a mom and her God is the safety and success of her daughter, and because her God is the safety and success of her daughter, she has smothered her daughter with expectations and overprotectiveness and constantly managing every detail of this young girl's life that she I, I can't go into the details just for a few reasons, but it's a really it's a really sad, awful situation, to the point where she's driven the daughter away completely. And she'll, she'll still justify her. Well, I just love my daughter. Okay, not seeing what's happening. Or another example. Uh, there's a pastor who, he, uh, he pastored for a while in a church in a big city. And so there were a lot of famous actresses, investment bankers, and so forth at his church and he he's, since he he now talks about this but he said before he would preach he would get three different prescription medic, medications that he didn't need well he did for this reason but beforehand he didn't so he got three prescription medications and then tripled the dose on Sunday morning before preaching because his idol was people peer approval right and because he couldn't stand the idea of these you know successful people thinking he was boring or incompetent or whatever. It just, he was wrecked with anxiety. And so the only way he could calm himself down was through heightening the dose of these medications because he had exchanged the creator for something derivative, right? The opinion of people. So we don't think clearly. Anyone looking at that situation can go, oh, dude, what are you doing? Right? But that's what happens when we do it and when we all do it. Okay, so it's the root of every sin. It distorts our thinking. Uh, but then number three, why is idolatry so dangerous? And it's because it can be anything. An idol can literally be anything. And uh, you see this, you see it in Romans 1, but also if you go back to Exodus 20, uh, you see uh, God get at it when he continues in Exodus 20 verse 4, where he says, uh, when he's talking about, moving into the second commandment, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. I.e., you can worship or make God into an image of any, anything, a thing, a concept. Okay, and so some of the tried and true idols in our nation and in most nations. Okay, so sex, money, power, those are three probably the most pervasive and most obvious idols that people look to. Um, but think about some other examples of, like anything that we, in, like when it comes to the brass tacks, functionally speaking, we look to, to do for us what only God can. So, um, family, politics, hard work, okay, approval, peer approval, other people's approval, autonomy, control. No one here in Northern Virginia has an issue with control, do you? <laughs> So it can be anything. So here I just, I want to talk about, I think, this area, it's, it's. there are other portions of the world that are similar to this area, but because this area does have its unique idols and we always become the air that we breathe inevitably, I think it's important to highlight maybe one of the most common ones and one of the ones that we may shrug off is not a big deal. And so I think one, we'll go into the main one and then its cousin. So, and that would be the, the idol of comfort. And so a a friend was telling me about, so have any of you guys been to the Mosaic District? And a friend pointed out, like, there's something, the Mosaic District, it's not natural, (laughs) right? I love it, okay, but it's not natural. And he said, so he has a, a young boy, I think he's six or seven, and he was saying how his son's birthday was coming up. He said, hey, you know, what do you want for your birthday? And he grew up in a family where, you know, his birthday gift was $5 or under. So he asks his son, you know, what can I do? For, what can I get for your birthday? And the son goes, you know the Mosaic district? And the dad goes, yes. You know, expecting him to say, oh, you know, the Target there. I guess can we go into Target and pick up something? And the son goes, you know those condos? And the father goes, yes. He goes, how about you get me one of those condos? And the father was like, who are you? (laughs) And he goes, okay, all right, let's go with it. Why do you want a condo? And and, And this was insightful. He goes, it just seems really comfortable. You know, like, I can walk across to the movie theater. I can walk across. I can get good Asian food. I can get good pizza. And I think children, it's not only that they don't have a filter like we do, and so they tend to speak what we think, but also, I mean, I think there's also a part of that, why would that child want that? I think because also he is witnessing what's really important to everybody in this area. And the, the father would probably say, including to himself. And we, we just love, we have a love affair with comfort. And, but think of like, does Jesus say anything about following him being comfortable? I mean, in one sense, yes. In the sense of you have, the King on high utterly committed to you and for you, you get the comfort of the Holy Spirit. So yes, like let's not go too. But I mean, just think about so many aspects of the Christian life. Sticking with your church family, when they say something, maybe that rubs you the wrong way, or their politics are different from you, isn't comfortable. Okay. Having a devotion in the morning often isn't comfortable to sit in silence with God. Right, to not have the stimulation we're, we're used to. Giving of your finances isn't comfortable. Okay, but, but it's what Jesus he invites us into because it is a better way to live following him. Right? And a, a cousin, you could say, of, of comfort, and particularly true in this area, is you could say the God of upgrade. Right? It's just something we take for granted. Okay, I get a one-bedroom apartment, then a two-bedroom, then I get a townhome, then I get a house, Then I upgrade my kitchen and I upgrade my bathroom, came for my kids. They need to go to this school and then a better school and a good college and get a good job. And are those things always bad? No, but I I do want to challenge us because if upgrade is the main thing that you're looking forward to all the time, it's like, can I, I just can't wait till I get this renovated. I can't wait till I get this new home. The thing I want most for my child is for them to have a career that makes people look up to me as the parent who enabled them to get that career. I don't know. I think Jesus defines upgrade very differently. Right? Are you becoming more patient with the people who are really hard to be patient with? Are you becoming more generous with your money and your energy? Are you willing to maybe forego some upgrades so you can give more of your money to the kingdom of God? Maybe even forego moving to a more comfortable area to really stick with your church family? I'm not laying down, to be clear, I'm not laying down all these things, like if you, right, if you move, you're in sin. This is a, it's the transit, right? You're a very transient church. But we do need to allow God right, to, to retool just our, our givens and our assumptions right, and how we think about things. So that's why the Lord loves us enough to give us the first commandment, right, because it's the root of all sins. It, it does distort our thinking, um, and it, it can be anything often that we're blind to. And so now, if it is so dangerous, let's look at uh, what's the what's the solution. Uh, so how do we overcome our this need to, right, to, to look to something derivative for things that only God can do? And the first thing, how do we overcome it, is Talk to God. This may seem so obvious, but I think that's the problem because how often do we actually engage with God about these issues? And this is what stuck out to me as I was reading the 10 commandments. I don't think God put down the first commandment because he's being mean or being demanding. I think it's because he loves us and it's an act of tenderness because he knows that that's gonna be our first struggle and it's gonna lead to the downstream effects of breaking all the other commandments. And so one of the greatest lies that you can believe is that God is somehow indifferent to your longings or repulsed by the fact that you have exchanged him. I mean, he knows how evil and damaging it is. That's why he cares about it. But he moves towards you when you do it. And so I just, I want to. this has been so helpful for me to actually go before God and audibly voice the things. And it. Pray Psalm 139, you search me, O oh God, and know my heart. Lord, there, there, there are things in my heart that I don't even know I'm exalting above you. Can you help me see them? And you know, some of you may be wondering, like, well, I really want my child to grow up and know the Lord. Is that a bad thing? Or I really want a spouse. And I don't have a spouse yet. Does God not want me to be happy? And He does want you to be happy, right? But happiness is on the far side of worshiping him first. And so you can go to him and just say, hey, here's something I really want. Can you help me sort through? Is this something I want too much? Am I going to say, you know, am I going to turn my back to you if you don't give it to me? Or hey, I find myself envying other people who have what I don't have. Can you work on this with me, God? I don't want you more than this thing. And just engage him with it. It is often the first step toward healing. So it'll be the first thing. Just talk talk to God about it. Very simple. So few of us do it. Um, number two, what's the solution? It's to unmask the idol for what it is. Because every idol overpromises and under delivers. There's a passage in Isaiah 44, and it's about an idol maker, and he chops down a tree, and he burns half of the tree in the fire, and then he uses the other half of the tree to fashion an idol. So he makes this idol out of the wood, you know, he just cut down the tree and he bows down before the wooden idol and he goes, deliver me for you are my God. And I think it's supposed to be read humorously because it's like, dude, <laughs> you just made it. <laughs> you just made it and now you're asking it to save you, like in the way that only God, and you, you can just, you can see the folly of it. But that's true for any idol we look to. It's just as foolish. Just unmask it for what it is. And so some examples, a career. Okay, does God want you to work hard in your career? Yes, absolutely. But if you elevate your career into the thing that's gonna give you your sense of purpose and significant and significance, you will forgo relationships that are closest to you. You will drive yourself and those around you into the ground, and even if you do succeed by the world's terms, eventually you will retire or be pushed out and no one will remember your name. It's going to happen to the best of us. A spouse or a child precious gifts from the Lord. But you say, I can't be happy until I get a spouse, or my spouse behaves this way, or I get a child, or my child walks in the ways of the Lord, even, as I want them to, you will put a burden on that person that they were never meant to bear. Okay, upgrade, up, 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 comfort. You're always going to be coveting those who have have it better than you, And at the end of your life, you might be comfortable, but you're going to have very few things to bring with you into the kingdom of God. Okay, idols always under-deliver on their promise. And so we, we need to unmask them for what they are. Okay, and then number three, most important, is to worship the true king. Worship the true king. And here's what I love about how Jesus works, and therefore how God works, because Jesus is God. God doesn't give us the commandment, have no other gods before me, and say, just stop it. Stop having other gods. Okay, he, whenever He gives us commands, He always gives us promises. Okay, so giving a command with no promise or power, it's like looking at if you have a cat or a dog and they're standing near the kitchen, and you look at your cat or dog and you say, make me dinner. You, you can exhort and you can give them a recipe book. They will not be able to make you dinner. Why? Because you have not actually empowered them to be able to do it. I think for so many of us, we, we feel these commands God's given us, but he's given us promises and power because commands with no promise is a millstone around our neck that we cannot carry. And so what's the promise? And, and you see it. It's, um, it's, oh, it's so subtle, but it's so powerful, Um. Verse 2 in Exodus 20, I am the Lord your God. So by using the name Lord, he's using his covenantal name, right? I belong to you and you belong to me. And then when he says, I am the Lord your God, what he's doing there is he's telling the Israelites, I'm inviting you into a relationship of personal pronouns. So to use an example, when I married my wife, Kelsey, she went from being a Kelsey to when I said my vow, she became my Kelsey. That's a big difference, right? Or my, ch- my sons. I'm not just a dad. They can look at me and say, my dad. And so when we engage with the Lord, He's not just a God or a father. We can say, you're my God. You're my rock and my redeemer, right? As David says in the Psalms. And when God says, you're my son, you're my daughter, he's saying, you actually have a claim on me. And when you see how committed God is to you, that's what enables you to let go of these cheap substitutes we hold on to and to worship him in all the glory that he is. And there's an example of this in the Fellowship of the Ring. And I'm pretty sure The Lord of the Rings is going to be required reading at the Heavenly Gates. And so if you if you haven't read them, you should. The movies are your second best. They are they're a well-done film, the the trilogy. Okay, but in in the movie, in the Fellowship of the Ring, which probably more of you have seen, hopefully. Hopefully Nick has, has been pastoring you well and the other leaders. Okay, so there is a there's a character named Boromir. And Boromir is, he's a lot like you and me. Right, he is a mixed bag of virtues and vices, and so he's the son of the steward of Gondor, and so Boromir believes he's the heir to the throne of Gondor. In one sense, he is because he's the son of the steward, and so in comes this guy named Aragorn, and Boromir learns that Aragorn is the true king, right, and the rightful king of Gondor. And how does Boromir respond? Is he happy? Does he bow down and worship him? No, right. He. He's disdainful toward Aragorn. He holds him in contempt, I think, partially because of his pride. You know, how, how dare you come in and take my throne? Is that a picture of us and God? How dare you and tell me what to do? And I think also it's because he's a little bit overwhelmed or underwhelmed because Boromir just kind of looks like this ragtag ranger from the north. He doesn't really look like he's all that much. But then, if you've seen it, do you do you remember when, where the, the shift happens to, in terms of how Boromir views Aragorn? And it happened toward the end of the film where... Uh, Boromir is in a big battle, and he gets pierced with a bunch of arrows. And he is on his knees, and there's this, you know, giant orc or urukai, or more technically, who's about to finish him off. Okay, he's, he's about to kill him, and as, as he's about to die, Aragorn comes running in from the side, right, and he puts himself between Boromir and death, and he risks his life to save Boromir, and he kills the orc who is about to kill him, and then. But at this point, uh, it's, it's too late, and Boromir's lying on the ground dying, and Aragorn comes over and he, he, he grabs Boromir's hand, and you can see Boromir's heart. It suddenly softens, and it melts, because he realized, he said, if this is someone who's willing to put his life on the line to rescue me, especially someone who hated him, this is a man I can follow this is a man I can call king. And he says, I would have followed you, my brother, my captain, my king. And you have a king when he saw you clinging to other gods and without hope in the world, ran into your life. And then he didn't just risk his life for you. He exchanged His life for you. Yeah. And he said, my life for you. Myself for you. And it's at the cross where He takes all of the pain and the loneliness and the shame that belongs to you, and He gives you all of the security and the righteousness and the intimacy with God that belongs to Him. And the more you get to know Him, the more you see that he is your brother who understands you. He knows your sorrows. He knows your longings. He knows your fears. He's lived them. And as your captain, he always leads you into the path of life. And as your king, he loves you enough to pry open your hands off of any cheap substitute you're hanging on to for God and replace them with the hands of his own. He is the thing you long for. He satisfies the things you long for because he is the thing you long for. And when you see that anew, you will say, Unlike Bormir, I would have followed you, but I will follow you to the end, my brother, my captain my king let's pray now heavenly father i just thank you so much that you love us enough to um give us a command that is so hard but yet leads us into so much joy and so i pray for every single person in here lord that you will uh, come alongside them with whatever the longings they have and through your spirit through your word through people in their community uh, illuminate their hearts to things they are exalting as derivative um, and looking to the, those things rather than you and I pray that you will soften their hearts and, and mine as well Lord to actually be open to you being the God in our lives thank you so much for your son Jesus and just how wonderful he is and how much he gave up for us and how much he continues to stay by our side as our high priest in heaven. and help us to stay with every fiber of our being as we look to Jesus my brother, my captain. Thank you, Lord. It's in your son's name we pray.